0: Whenever I was a kid, anytime I would have a headache, you know, of course my mom would offer to give me aspirin or ibuprofen or whatever. And I always remember like consistently as a kid, like I didn't understand how medicine worked. So like the fact that like the minute I swallowed it, if my headache didn't instantly go away, I would get frustrated and think, well, it doesn't work, and I need to do something else. Or I would like, constantly ask my mom if I could have more, that the amount she gave me wasn't good. And of course, now that I understand a, like, you know, liver failure and things like that, I'm like, okay, it was prob- probably good that my mom didn't give me any more. But the thing she would consistently say is, it takes time to work. You got to give it a little bit of time for the you know, effects of that to begin to work out in your life. And of course we understand this in other areas too with, you know, antibiotics and things like that often if you're given a course of antibiotics for an infection or something like that they say, you know, it can take a day or two before you actually start to see the effects of the antibiotics and you need to make sure to take the entire course because if you think oh my symptoms are gone so I'll stop in the middle that that could just be subduing the symptoms and the infection can actually come back that often there's a disconnect between the solution and the benefits of the solution. Another example, I was just reading about this the other day, I thought was really good, was in World War II. Even though the Nazis surrendered to the Allies in May of 1945, it took some battalions of German soldiers days, weeks, and for some even months to hear that their side had lost the war. I was actually reading about the last troops of World War II to put down their arms and surrender was actually a group of German soldiers who surrendered to a group of Norwegian seal hunters on Bear Island. Bear Island is this tiny little island like right between like north of Norway just south of the Arctic. Apparently it was a small detachment that had been sent out to start up some sort of like a weather station and they had lost radio contact for months. It was actually in September of 1945, four months after the war ended, that these Norwegian seal hunters told them, yeah, the war's over and you lost. And of course, they ended up giving up without a fight. But even crazier than that, I was reading about there was one particular Japanese soldier named Hiru Onada who actually surrendered in 1974 almost 30 years after he comes out of the jungle and surrenders and admits that the war is over, almost 30 years after the war ended. See, sometimes the truth can take some time to have its proper effect in our lives. And this is important for us to know as we are, you know, kind of continuing in this series we've been doing called The Truth About Us. And, of course, the truth about us is that we are not very truthful about us. We all tend to think we're better than we actually are, but the good news about the bad news is that Jesus has come to set us free from that, and so that's what I want to talk about today. At the beginning of the series, Darren revealed the hard truth that we are not nearly as good as we think we are. We rationalize, we explain, we justify our behavior, we only tend to look to sources that tend to reinforce what we already believe about kind of deluding ourselves and others about how good or bad we think we are. And then last week I talked about when faced with the truth about us, it kind of puts us at a crossroads where we essentially can go down two different paths we can let that truth about us drive us to a place of desperation where we allow the realization, the reality of our badness drive us in desperation to Jesus. Or we can actually put on a mask And say, you know what, I'm going to pretend I'm something I'm not. I'm going to ignore or deny or delude myself of my continual failure. And I'm going to pretend that I'm better than I am. And this mask, of course, is called self-righteousness. I actually had a professor in college who, he said this, and we thought it was funny at the time, but I feel like it's one of those, like, delayed burst things where, like, as time goes on, I realize just how true this idea is. He would always say in his class that, essentially, in life, there are three types of people in the world. There are people who are goofy, and they know it, There are people who are goofy, and they don't know it. And the third type, there are people who are goofy, they know it, but they don't want other people to know it. And he said, those people are the most dangerous because they breed pretense. I have to put up a mask. I have to pretend. I have to act like I'm better than I am or that I'm something that I'm not. And so... We, we end up just kind of almost condemning and judging everyone else around us whenever they don't quite match up to the standard we've actually just raised up ourselves. It's not even necessarily God's standard, but it's a, the way Darren talked about self-righteousness. His self-righteousness is creating my own standard and then viewing myself as meeting it in my own eyes. That's what self-righteousness is. And so today, as I'm bringing this series in for a landing, today I want to talk about the what-if What if we were to give in to desperation and allow our badness to drive us to Jesus? What if we were to say no to self-righteousness, no to thinking you're better than you actually are, and in humility embrace this good news that Jesus is actually the one who makes us good, not anything we say or do. What if we were humble enough to recognize that our badness makes us need Jesus each and every day? That it actually makes us need God more every day, not less? Well, I can describe what that would mean in one word. Freedom naming our condition for what it really is humbly accepting our true selves before God in all of its brokenness in all of its goofiness brings a greater freedom than we could ever pretend than we ever could attain through pretending or posturing and so for this message what i want to talk about today is if you say yes to allowing desperation to drive you to Jesus i want to talk about the freedoms we experience when we let go of self-righteousness and we say yes to humility and the righteousness given us freely in Jesus. So this is the first one. The first freedom that we experience is the freedom to be authentic. See, when I'm able to let go of self-righteousness and truly admit my condition before God, no matter how bad I actually am, it sets me free from pretending Now, there are several reasons why pretending is bad, why we should live lives that are fully authentic before God, no matter how bad we actually are. And of course, the first one is the fact that pretending to be something that you're not is deception. It's lying. You are presenting a false self to the world, presenting a, what I've heard an author called the glittering image. I present this glittering image before people of saying, my life is all together. My marriage is better than it actually is. I don't struggle with this or that. In fact, I don't actually really struggle with anything. My life overall is good. I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person when the truth is I'm actually struggling in different areas. But I'm afraid to admit it to anybody. See, this was actually the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. See, at the end of Acts 4, we're actually told this. It says, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anybody who had need. It was just—in the early church, it was this beautiful picture of, like, we really do view ourselves as as having everything in common, and that— You know, if I have resources and they can meet your needs, then in love and in the name of Jesus, I will do that. And so there were people who were literally selling property and then just giving the money away, just saying, it's not mine, I'm just going to give it away and allow God to do whatever he wants with it. But then we see as great of a picture as this is in the early church of what early Christian life looked at, almost immediately, and this is just human nature, we begin to see cracks in the veneer. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, we already see cracks in the authenticity. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So this is running right in tandem with the way the Christian life had been lived at the time. It says, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. See, now the assumption in these verses is that when people brought the money to the apostles, they either, you know, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they either— and we don't know whether it was through a lie of omission, like maybe they just didn't mention it, or they actually like straight up lied and said, hey, we sold this property, here's all the money for it. So they kind of put that out there. Or maybe they're just like, hey, we sold this property— And then they just hand it and just kind of let them assume that it was the full amount. But either way, they were not being fully honest about the money. They kept some of it back for them. Now, notice Peter's response in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now, oftentimes we hear that and think, like, gosh, if I don't, like, sell everything, like, God's gonna, I'm lying to God, and God's gonna strike me down or whatever. But notice the questions that come after, where he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings But to God. Now, notice, Peter isn't rebuking them for not giving enough money, or he's not even rebuking them for greed. So, really, in this story, it's not about the money itself. He says, Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? He said, You're not just deceiving the community, you're actually deceiving God as well. Because, see, the truth about Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they didn't give enough to the church, because I know oftentimes this story gets invoked, and then everybody kind of gets a little bit nervous, and they're like, do we need to pass the offering bucket again? Do we need to, maybe I need to make a once more around the plate, you know, just to make sure I give enough that I don't get struck down. But that's not really what this is about. This story is not about greed. It's about authenticity. See, I firmly believe that had Ananias told Peter, hey, we sold this land, this is the amount of money that we got, we want to give some of the money to the church. Now granted, they may have not looked as generous as other people who were giving the entirety of whatever you know, thing that they were selling, but at least they would have been honest before God. And see, that's the problem that often comes with self-righteousness. Self-righteous people care more about looking good than actually being good, even if no one sees it. It's about appearances, and this pretending can kill you over and over and over again. See, gang, this is why job interviews and first dates are so absolutely exhausting. Because so much of that is about you're putting up this mask, you're putting up this kind of best foot forward of like, it's kind of the moment of like, okay, when I'm on a first date or when I'm on a jo- job interview, this is maximize my strengths and minimize my weaknesses. Like I'm wanting to put my best foot forward for people to think I'm, you know, the best that I possibly could be. And then hopefully by the time my name, you know, gets into the system, then it doesn't matter so much whether they find out some of my weaknesses because I'm already in. Or like when you go on a date, it's like, I know like, okay, when I'm going on a first date with this girl, I'm not going to talk about Star Wars on the first date. Like, Star Wars is not first date conversation. Star Wars is like third year of marriage conversation. Like, you got you to gotta wait a while before you let that out because that could sometimes be a deal breaker. Thankfully, it wasn't for Lindsay. She's, no, she's not here. Okay. I may change my message and not talk about Star Wars. Uh, but see, when we become free of self-righteousness, then I can be real. Even if the real me, honestly is not that great. See, I believe God longs for us to be square with him. Because here's the thing, guys. He already knows. He knows what you're like. He knows what you're thinking. Those angry, those bitter thoughts, those vengeful thoughts, those lustful thoughts. God knows them from beginning to end. So why are you pretending like they're not there? It's like whenever your kid hurts themselves and they're, like, hiding. They won't let you see it. They won't let you tend to it. And you realize, like, I know you're hurt. Like, me seeing it is not going to make you suddenly hurt when you're not hurt. Like, I need to see it to be able to help you, to fix it, to heal it. See, I firmly believe that we need to stop acting like first-date Christians in our relationship with God putting our best foot forward, putting up a facade, putting up a mask, thinking God will reject us if he knew the truth about us. He already knows we need to be real. See, this is why I love it, love it, when parents are honest about their life, and especially their kids, on social media. Because it's— and it's just a natural part of life that it's easy to present yourself on social media as the house is always clean my marriage is great my kids are all obedient we all love the lord and always follow him perfectly like it's so easy to kind of present that facade online to and of course other people see that and they think well they seem to have it together but my home life isn't like that like so I can't tell anybody what, you know, that I'm having problems with my kids or my wife and I just had a fight right before you know, I was about to post these pictures. And so like, I can't let people know because obviously other people don't seem to be struggling with that. But if we are really honest with each other, there is a fine layer of crumbs on everything in the house. My kids have worn the same shirt three days in a row and my wife is on the verge of murdering someone because now apparently going to the bathroom is a team sport don't get to do it alone anymore. And see, when we start getting real about that, suddenly it's okay to not be okay. We're all in the same place, needing grace, needing God's mercy, needing Jesus every single day. And as we grow and mature in our faith, we don't need him less, but we actually need him more. And that's one of the, guys, this is one of the main reasons people don't want anything to do with religion or spirituality because honestly, oftentimes what people are thinking is if following Jesus means being like you or being like me, if we're fake, that's what they think. If, if following Jesus means being fake, no thanks. I don't want anything to do with it. See, people are yearning for something real, even if it's raw, something authentic, even if it's messy. That's what's going to change the world, to see people who are desperate for Jesus, wholly surrendering themselves over to him every single day. So that's the first thing. We begin to have freedom to be authentic, to be who we really are, and have that real self begin to be transformed by Jesus. And so the next freedom that we experience by letting go of self-righteousness is freedom from judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but the moment that I can stop thinking I'm better than everyone else around me, more spiritual, more together, more having it figured out, the sooner I can actually start liking other people who don't have it together either. Because I think in some ways that if I can only love the me, the version of me that has it all together, then I find myself only loving other people around me who appear to have it all together. Because honestly... We probably find ourselves resenting those who don't have it all together because we wish we didn't have to pretend like we did. See, judging others can be a vicious cycle. I think this is what the writer of Proverbs meant when he wrote in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, for the longest time, I thought that always meant, like, in your interactions with other people, and I think it does in many ways, that, like, if someone's amping up and getting angry, to respond in kindness and respond in gentleness can, like, lower the situation. It can bring calm and gentleness in the other person. But honestly, I think there's a truth to this verse, even in our own souls, that, like, I think this principle applies to ourselves. If I treat and respond, you know, to someone with gentleness and kindness rather than judgment and anger, it actually turns away anger inside me as well. Because it's easy when I feel like I have to have it all together, or I pretend like I have it all together, and I see people, other people, who don't have it all together, I get angry and I want to judge them. I mean, it's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that I talked about last week. Like, notice in that story that I talked about last week, All the tax or all the Pharisee focused on was other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like this person and this person and that tax collector and that man, just all horrible people. Like he's almost wholly focused on the other person, but the tax collector he's he's so focused on his own sin, on just being right with God, coming to God in desperation that he doesn't have time to judge other people. See, this is what I think is probably one of the hardest dynamics I feel like I've dealt with as a pastor is seeing how people's behavior changes around me when they find out I'm a pastor. Because I remember years ago, I was at the gym and started, you know, there's this guy who always seemed to be there around the same time. We started talking, became friends and stuff. He'd spot me, I'd spot him, we'd share techniques and stuff like that and started to kind of develop a bit of a friendship and you know we're working out and of course he had a he cursed like a sailor and you know just he was who he was and i remember at one point you know this is months and months into this kind of friendship he finally asks you know cuz we're just working out and he's like yeah so like where do you work what do you do for a living i'm like oh i'm a pastor at a church on the north side of town and he's like oh <laughs> and then suddenly he's not swearing anymore He's avoiding some of the topics he talked about before, and if he would slip, which, you know, you're sometimes working out, things happen, and, he, and then he'd be like, oh, sorry, and I'm just like, bro, I'm like, I just, I want you to be you. You don't have to, I mean, because literally, I think he's afraid that I'm gonna be judging everything that he's saying, and so, like, usually in conversations like that, I'm like, bro, I've got enough problems of my own to be judging anybody else, to be pulling splinters out of anyone else's eye. I've got plenty of planks, like, that's my mantra for my life. I got plenty of planks. I don't I don't need to be judging anybody else because I'm I'm letting Jesus put my life back together. I'm like, you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. Now if desperation is driving him to change his life, to come to Jesus, that's that's a whole other conversation. But if it's to appease judgment that he thinks is coming from me, that's not faith. That's religion. That's dead, empty religion, and Jesus frees us to do that, to show compassion to those who are struggling, because guess what? We know what it's like to struggle, and if you don't know what it's like to struggle, you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to your own life. You're not looking below the surface. Dig a little bit deeper, and I think you'll be surprised all the things that need to be put back together by Jesus, And it's not just about freedom from judging other people. Letting go of self-righteousness also frees us from the fear of God's judgment as well. One of my favorite verses, this is 1 John 1, verse 8. He says... If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is self-righteousness, if that's anything. If we claim we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. Because the truth is, and as I talked about last week, our self-righteousness can often blind us from our actual unrighteousness. But once we own it before God, we don't have to fear his judgment anymore because he justifies us freely. He rightifies us. He makes it just as if I've never sinned. But that only comes when we walk in faith and in humility before God. So that's the second thing we have a freedom that you know a freedom from judgment now the next thing that happens when we lose our self-righteousness and humility it gives us a freedom to release control and boy this is a huge one this was the hardest part of the message for me because I feel like it's we want to control things in our lives we want to we want to feel like we're stable in things and I have a handle on things going on but the truth is and I've heard this said before, that humility is the continual recognition that God owes me nothing. Hear that. Humility is the continual recognition that God owes me nothing. In our entitlement-driven world, we're all about my rights and your rights, and this is my due, and you owe me this, and the government owes me that, and you can't take away this right or that right, and it leads me to a place of becoming me-centered, where the focus is solely on me, but with the Lord, he doesn't owe us anything. The Apostle Paul said it best to the Romans. This is toward the end of his letter to the Romans, uh, Romans 11, verse 35. I love this question. I almost need to read this question on a daily basis. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Think about that. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, that's the truth of the matter, that God doesn't owe us anything. We, get, we don't get to make demands of God. Every single good thing in our lives comes from Him, and anything we receive in our lives is a result of two things. It's either a result of His grace, which is Him giving us good things that we don't deserve, or it's a result of His mercy, which is, which is Him not giving us bad things that we do deserve. I think the truth is we would be quite terrified if God were to actually give us what we deserve. And if you wonder what we deserve, look at the cross. That's what we actually deserve. We should thank him every day that he doesn't give us that. But see, once I realize in humility that God doesn't owe me any owe me anything, then I'm free to release control and allow God to be God. I can stop trying to control situations, to manipulate them how I want. I don't have to be in control of all my circumstances or how things are going to turn out. I don't have to waste time worrying about what happens tomorrow because I know I have a Father who loves me, who longs to give me good gifts. Though I deserve nothing, he still longs to give me everything in Christ. I can spend my days being thankful and happy about every single thing that comes my way because I can humbly accept that I don't deserve any of it. It's mercy and grace through and through. And it also means that I can stop trying to control other people's reactions as well. This is the hardest part for me because... I just—I I don't like conflict, and I don't like dealing with those things. So a part of me, it's like I want to—I want to try to posture things in a way so people don't get upset. I just want everybody to be okay. But there are times when I don't have control over how people respond. And it's hard for me to let that go and entrust that to God of saying, in this situation, I have no control over how this person responds. But instead, oh God, I just entrust it over to you that I'm going to have to do what I have to do in this situation and just entrust myself over to you And realizing that all of us, rather than controlling and manipulating one another, we are all simply beggars looking for bread at the same time. It frees me to help and to serve people rather than trying to use them to get what I want. That is the power of humility. So that's the next one, is that we are free to let go of control. And then finally, the last freedom we receive by embracing humility and letting go of self-righteousness is the freedom to take more risks. See, when my trust is not in myself and in my own abilities and righteousness, then I don't fear failure anymore. The pressure to succeed and to perform and to overcome are not squarely on my shoulders anymore, but they're actually on the Lord. The Psalms are literally filled with this sentiment, filled with this idea. Psalm 27, verse 1 through 3 says this, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid?' When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, then I will be confident. See, oftentimes, and this is just the human performance mode, the human striving mode that we tend to be in, is that we tend to put most of our worth and our value in our performance, in our behavior. If I do well in life, it's because I'm an exceptional person. If I'm successful, it's because I'm a worthwhile individual. But with this, we can let go of that earning mentality and truly become creative, truly begin to take risks. Because normally we think like the most you know, successful people in the world, you think, man, I just I need to be more confident to be successful. But the truth is, if I can let go of my value and worth being attached to my performance, then I can try radically powerful things because I know if I fail, my worth and my value are not tied to those. So I can try tons of things I never would have ever tried because I no longer fear failure. This is why Thomas Merton, a Christian author and writer on prayer and contemplative prayer in the early 20th century wrote this. He said to penetrate the truth of how utterly unimportant we are is the only thing that can set us free to enjoy true happiness. Now, obviously when I say unimportant, I don't mean unimportant to God. But to let go of that incessant need of, like, I have to prove my worth, I have to prove my value, I have to perform, I have to succeed, or somehow I'm not worth anything. It frees us to focus on the things that really matter, to take risks, to be creative in all kinds of ways we never thought possible. And we need to be reminded of this on a regular basis. And this is partly why we gather the way we do on Sunday morning to gather on Sunday morning is to preach the gospel, but I feel like the thing that I'm learning more and more that we're preaching the gospel not just to those who have never heard it, but we're also preaching the the gospel to those who have heard it. You and me. Because the truth is, I forget. I forget who I am. I forget whose I am. I forget who I belong to and what he did on my behalf. And so I need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, just as much as someone who's never heard it. I need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for me. We need to hear the good news that we're safe now. We can stop trying to be so strong. The good news is that the war is already over. The battle is already won. God has saved us from ultimate danger on the cross, and we are set free to live wildly creative, humble, other-focused lives that don't feel compelled to judge or to pretend or to be something that we're not. We don't have to maintain control over our lives or over those around us. We are finally and completely free to be at rest at the one who rescued us from ourselves. And so this is how we're going to end the service together. As you came in, I hope that you actually grabbed the communion elements, and if you didn't, they're actually, we've spaced them out, we've taken precautions for safety and all that stuff, that if you didn't grab the communion elements as you came in, there's tables on either side, we're about to have a time of reflection over the gospel, over the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, and if you didn't grab these elements, I encourage you during the reflection time, you can jump up and go grab them off the table and return back to your seat. What I want to encourage you to do, we're going to have a time, and we're just going to have some music, have some time for you to reflect on the things that we've talked about. The freedoms that are offered in Jesus because of His sacrifice on the cross, because of His resurrection, we can now live in that freedom. And during this time, the scriptures talk about, in 1 Corinthians 11, that we ought to examine ourselves before taking of the cup and the bread. And so I want to encourage you during these next few moments, allow the Lord to search your heart. Say, God, show me, search my heart for self-righteousness, places where I'm judging, places where I'm too afraid, where I'm attaching my worth and value to my own righteousness, my own behavior, where I'm afraid to take risks. Show me any area in my life that is not pleasing to you, areas of unrighteousness where I've sinned and maybe not confessed it, and I need to bring it before you because he's already made the way through the cross, through his blood, through his broken body, so that we can return back to God. So take these next few moments to just kind of sit in God's presence, reflect on the gospel, on what Christ has done for you, and then I'm going to come back up after and we're actually going to take the elements together. So hold on to them. Don't take them quite yet. And if you're watching online and taking it, don't take them quite yet. And we'll take them together as a body. On the night that Jesus was betrayed He took bread And he broke it And he said take and eat This is my body Take and eat And on the same night he took the cup And he said this is my blood poured out the new covenant. Drink it every time you do in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Father, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what your son has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. To set us free from unrighteousness, to set us free from having to pretend, from having to perform. You set us free to love and to live for you in full authenticity. And so right now we surrender our lives to you. We remember your glorious gospel of what you've done for the world. And we will proclaim this death until you return. And may that day be soon, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.